come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Episode number 57 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I'm going to be doing my year-end slash Christmas number six, as I have one movie that is set during the winter Christmas season, as well as another one that is going to be a 2020 release. And I did some moving around on some of the things here as I had a plan originally and then decided to kind of alter it as I watched a movie that I thought was much better. So the first featured review on here is going to be the 2020 release of The Dark and the Wicked, the new Brian Bertino film. And then I also have for the winter one is Wrong Turn for Bloody Beginnings. And then for mini reviews on here, I have Never Hike in the Snow, Lake of Death, the one that's on Shutter from 2019 that is, I believe, a Norwegian film. And then I also have The City of the Dead, which is also goes by the title of Horror Hotel from 1960, just to keep up with my journey through the odds little thing that I've been doing. So this one, not as many mini reviews as I had last week, I believe. So, but I want before I get over to those reviews, I'm going to kick you over to my monthly review. For my monthly review here, I had watched 32 total movies in the month of November, 27 of them were horror movies, and those 27 are The Nightmare Before Christmas, The Golden Glove, The Honeymoon Phase, Black Sunday, Salo or The 120 Days of Sodom, High Tension, Cabin Fever, Shudder, Troll 2, Metamorphosis, Doctor Sleep, The Watts Monster, The Shining, Tale of Tales, Monstrum, Calvair or The Ordeal, Tusk, What Have You Done to Solange, Dumplings, Blood and Roses, The Visitor, Sputnik, The Vampire and the Ballerina, Marabito, Amulet, Flatliners, and that is the uh, 2017, I believe, remake, and then the last one was The Dark and the Wicked. Now, I watched seven new horror movies in this month, which are The Golden Glove, The Honeymoon Phase, Metamorphosis, Monstrum, Sputnik, Amulet, and The Dark and the Wicked. And what I mean by new, those are all getting a 2020 release. 
Now, the average year of everything that I watched is 1999. The oldest films were Black Sunday, Blood and Roses, and The Vampire and the Ballerina, which are all from 1960. Now, the average rating of everything I watched is a 7.5, with the highest rated going to Doctor Sleep at a 10 out of 10, and the lowest rated being Troll 2 at a 4.5. And then I watched movies from 15 different countries, so those ones are the United States, Germany, as well as West Germany, France, Italy, Romania, Thailand, South Korea, United Kingdom, Belgium, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Russia, Japan, United Arab Emirates, and then the last one would be Canada. And then there's only two movies on this month that do not fall on my feed here, and those are The Watts Monster, which is on the podcast Under the Stairs Movie Club Challenge, and then What Have You Done to Solange is on the T-Puts Collective Where to Begin with Giallo. So those are all of the things I kind of want to do here for my monthly review. So I'm going to kick you over to a musical break before I get you into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Blood is mine, go 
first mini review here, I was actually going to have this be one of my featured reviews until I realized that it was only running 31 minutes, so I decided that I would just make it as the first mini review that I did, and this is Never Hike in the Snow. This is written and directed by Vicente DeSanti. This stars Tom Matthews, Vincent Gassafero, and Brian Forrest. This is an adventure horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb, nice, and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being three months prior to the events of Never, Never Hike Alone that follows the strange disappearance of Mark Hill, a Crystal Lake resident who went for a hike in the dead of winter and never came home. Now, this was one that I remember hearing about this not too long after the original one was released. It had a lot of success, and many Friday the 13th fans, including myself, really wanted to see you know more movies taking on Jason Voorhees, and especially with this one putting him in the snowy environment. When this film finally got released, I had it on a list of films I needed to check out, and I finally got around to it now that it's cold out, and at the by the time of writing this, and actually as I'm recording this, there is snow on the ground here in Ohio. And now we start this off seeing the mountains and the snowy terrain that we learn is Camp Crystal Lake area. Now, we see Mark as he's running across the terrain, and he's wearing a bright jacket, and Mark Hill is portrayed by Corlin Gordon. Now, whatever it is, something is terrifying him that is chasing. We see who it is, and that's Jason Voorhees, portrayed by DeSanti. He fires an arrow, which knocks down Mark before ending everything with an axe. Now, he is able to set off his car alarm before dying, but Jason takes care of that. This crime does draw the attention of Sheriff Rick Cologne, who is Gastafaro, along with his deputy of Alan Mar Marbury, who is Forrest. Now, they find blood in the snow and the vehicle, but no body. Sheriff Rick decides that he's going to tell Mark's mother that he is missing, and she is Diana, portrayed by Anna Campbell, while Deputy Mabry continues to clean up the crime scene. They're not the only ones that are alerted to this, and that is Tommy Jarvis, who is Tom Matthews in this again. And it appears that he has a reputation. Now, he is the only one that knows Jason is out there and how dangerous he actually is. So, I do feel that the writer, director, and actor of Desanti here really has his fingers on the pulse of what Friday the 13th fans want. We're getting the Jason Voorhees that we want and getting the slasher in the snow here as well. There's a great opening kill and then a bit of story to help drive this movie from there. If I do have issues from here, I didn't realize that this was a prequel. Now, with that said, I haven't seen the original one in a little bit. I have seen it three times, but... I should have known. Now, this really isn't that big of a deal towards the story. I'm not going to hold that against it. Another issue, though, is I wish this was longer. I'm not sure if this is budgetary or just didn't have the story there, but I would like to have seen more kills. Because after that opening one, we get a lot of story that is driving everything, but I just don't know if what we get in the climax and the ending here is enough to fully kind of satisfy me. And I really should say that it is really front and back loaded. But from here, I'll go to the effects, which they are practical, and those ones look good to me. There was one with Mark where I could tell that it was kind of an effect, but that's fine. And then there is something that is pulled from Friday the 13th Part 2 here that all that looks good for me. Now, they did go CGI with a shotgun and something with an axe that didn't look as good for me, though. And it would probably be easier to do it, you know, with CGI. And then again, this could also be budgetary reasons. It doesn't look horrible, but I could just tell that it was an effect. I thought the acting was good. It's great to see Matthews back as Tommy. He's just an actor that I have a soft spot for, and he just seems to do really good in everything that I see him in and just fits into this role. Gassafaro works as the sheriff. I like that it seems that he knows about Jason, but it doesn't necessarily believe it. Forrest is fine as his deputy, and it appears that he is playing Jason for some of the scenes as well. Gordon Campbell and the rest work as well to round this out, and then shout out to DeSanti as he has a great imposing size to portray as Jason. 
So I think this is a solid follow-up. I don't think it's as good, and I do take off a little bit of points because I do want it a little bit longer so it could have been a full feature. As I know the other one didn't even run an hour long, but I would have liked to have seen it at least get up to that runtime as well. This is still worth it, and I would say that this is something good for Friday the 13th fans if you kind of want to just, you know, get something that's a little bit new and can kind of hold off your want for a new movie. I mean, we still would like to have, you know, official canon one, but these ones do really work for me. I think this would be even better if you could kind of edit it to start this off and then have it transition into Never Hike Alone. I'm sure there's somebody has done that out there since, you know, that this would be the prequel to that original one. But I still think this is worth a viewing and came in as an above average movie at a 7 out of 10. And then up next, I watched Lake of Death from 2019. This goes by the original title of Didode's Tune. This is written and directed by Nini Bol Robsham. This stars Patrick Walshie McBride, Ivan Eckerly, and Ulrich von der Isch. This is a drama horror mystery film that is from Norway, and it is currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 2.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Lillian and some friends travel back to the remote cabin by the little lake where her little twin brother died last year, and soon after arriving, strange things start happening, and this is inspired by a 1958 classic horror film. Now, this is another one of those movies that hit Shudder as part of a group for 2020 releases. Many of them were foreign, which I'm always glad to see, and I like to be, you know, well-rounded when I'm making my year-end list, and just in general for the genre. Now, for this one, we start with a couple in a boat. Now, they're brother and sister, and one of them is Bjorn, who is McBride, and then his sister is Lillian, who is Eckerly. Now, it appears that Bjorn is deaf and is speaking with sign language, and she knows how to at least respond back and know some stuff, and it appears that their time is running short together as Lillian is about ready to leave with Kai, who is Vonderesh, and this seems to bother her brother. Now, the movie then shifts us one year into the future. They are going back to the cabin that belonged to the siblings. The problem is that last year after she had left, it appears that he disappeared. The assumption is that he killed himself. They never found the body, so there's a possibility that he, you know, did it in the lake. Some more information here is that they both came up in the foster system. The cabin is the only thing that was left to them from their real parents. So Bjorn dying there really makes it hard for her to go back, even though this is kind of really the only thing that she has to remember her parents by. Or at least to kind of have something that she can, you know, stake a claim on for her family. Now, she isn't going up alone, as some of her friends are trying to help her, you know, get over this trauma. Now, coming up with her is her friend of Sonia, who is Sophia Lai, and then as well as her boyfriend of Harold, who is Elias Monk. And it appears that Lillian is now seeing a Gabriel, who is Jonathan Harbo, and he is also joining along with another friend of theirs, of Bernhard, who is Jacob Shoyan Anderson. Now, he has a podcast and wants to do an episode on the lake they're going to, as it seems there's some, you know, folklore about a spooky surrounding story about a man who was living close to it. And then on top of that, he has some solid horror movie references that he drops, but his friends don't really seem to appreciate them as much as I do. Now, as the synopsis states, some weird things start to happen. Now, the I, the story of the from the past of Grunvik who killed his family there is the folklore and the story that I was referring to that's kind of dark. Now, they also bring up Lillian's dog of Tato, who goes missing almost immediately. Now, she is seeing some weird markings on her friends that seem to be spreading, like, almost like a poison or something like that. Now, Kai disappears, and so do their cell phones. The question then becomes, is there something supernatural going on here, or is there another explanation that, you know, could help explain everything? 
Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap. And what I'll start off here saying is that we have an interesting setup here. There are quite a few characters, which I found to be interesting. Now, the backstory that we slowly learn about them with Lillian and her brother, Abjorn, also works for me. There's such a tragic kind of thing that we have going on here. And, I mean, just being in foster care like many others, like, that is enough there but we also kind of realize that there's a little bit more to that as well and there's some guilt here that Lillian is dealing with but you can't entirely fault her now she we end up learning that she did leave her brother and end up getting adopted so that's kind of what she feels bad about and that could also kind of explain why Bjorn acts the way that he does now this movie does well in establishing all of our characters where they're all distinct from each other and this also plays into something that I like here is that we become distrustful of them very quickly. Bernhardt is disliked at first because everyone thinks he's messing with them for the sake of his podcast. And he also makes some inappropriate comments at times. And he just rubs some of the other characters the wrong way. Harold isn't that much better though as he comes off standoffish and really targets Bernhard, making him a villain to me as well. Now what I do like here is it doesn't take long for this distrust to grow amongst them as the tension builds. Now, I know this movie is based off of a classic film from the country of the same name. My problem is that the reveal wasn't all that shocking to me. I do have to blame Shudder a bit here for the category that they list a movie in, as that it did give a little bit away for me. Even if that didn't happen, it wasn't as much of a shock as some movies that I've seen. It is just a trope that we've seen before, and it doesn't really do anything to stand out. I like that they establish that Lillian is having nightmares, and that she's unreliable for some of the things that she's seeing. I do think they go to the nightmare well a little bit too often. And I like that they're, you know, including folklore here, as that is something that really interests me to learn more about with foreign films. The problem, again, though, is that I've seen quite a bit of what we're doing here, and it doesn't stand out, and I think that's where it falters. Where I would go next would be the acting. I will give credit here to the fact that everyone is pretty distinct, and that is something that is needed when you have a cast as large as we have here. McBride isn't in this movie a lot, but what we learn about him from his performance and the more from the backstory, it makes sense for the character of Bjorn. Ockerly is different from him but i like that we kind of have that she's also unreliable and yeah she doesn't have some of the same issues that he's dealing with but she's dealing with her own now at van Der Esch is solid but he's really another one that we don't get a lot of screen time with harbo monk anderson and lie are all really good in building tension at the cabin and again being distinct characters that i could tell apart and the last thing i would go over here would be the effects we get some interesting ones that would include, you know, the blood looks solid to me. They also play with the idea of blood coming out of the sinks or at least a dark kind of colored substance that looks a lot like it. What is interesting here is that we don't necessarily know if that's real or not. Now there is some CGI here with things growing on people or on walls. I thought that was fine. We really don't focus on it too much, so that helps. The cinematography I would also say is well done for what I could see. So as I kind of already went through everything here, I just feel that this movie doesn't necessarily stand out with some of the things that it's trying to do as it's something that we've seen and there's been just quite a bit of films from the beginning of cinema that has some of these things. I just think that we have a good setting, the backdrop of the stories and behind like our lead character and her missing brother, the bit of folklore mixed in there works. I do think the performances were good. I thought the effects and how it was shot were fine and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I just find this to be an above average movie where I come in at a 6 out of 10. And I also will warn you that this is, again, from Norway. So I had to watch it with subtitles on. So if that's a problem, I would definitely avoid this. If not, I think it's all right. It's not going to be anything that I think you're going to walk away from, you know, being completely blown away. But it isn't a bad film overall. And then I have for you the 1960s film that I was going to watch for this week is The City of the Dead or this also goes by the other title of Horror Hotel. 
This is directed by John Lewin Moxie. This comes from the screenplay by George Baxt and comes from a story from Milton Sabotsky. This stars Patricia Jessel, Dennis Lotus, and Christopher Lee. This is a horror mystery thriller that is from the United Kingdom that is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a young college student arrives in a sleepy Massachusetts town to research witchcraft. During her stay at an eerie inn, she discovers a startling secret about the town and its inhabitants. Now, this is a movie that I first heard about due to the fact that it was on a combo pack that I had with Carnival of Souls from 1962. Then there was another one that had two other movies on it as well. I'm assuming this is due to the fact that this must be in public domain so they could easily add it. Now, I wasn't the biggest fan after the first viewing. I still enjoyed it, but I wanted to watch this a little bit more critical eye here. So that's why I'm adding it to this Journey Through the Aughts segment. Now, we start this back in 1692 where there's an angry mob in the village of Whitewood that is coming for Elizabeth Selwyn, who is Jessel. Now, she's accused of killing an Abigail Adams. Now, Elizabeth calls out to Jethro Keane, who is Valentine Dial, for help. He denies being a part of her coven, and then she's burned for witchcraft. While this is happening, though, we see that Jethro is lying and says a prayer to Satan to help her out. Then we go to present day where this is being told to a class by an Alan Driscoll who is Christopher Lee. Now this is a weird setting for it because it appears to be in his office and not necessarily a classroom. Now after his lecture, Nan Barlow, who is Venetia Stevens, is really interested in what he's saying where her boyfriend of Bill Maitland, who is Tom Naylor, isn't so much. She scolds him and then Alan asks her to stay after class. Nan informs him that she wants to do her term paper the best that she can and then for the upcoming break, she wants to go to the smallest and oldest town in New England that she can to do a little bit more in-depth research. He directs her to the Raven's Inn in the village of Whitewood. She thanks him and states that is where she will go. Now, this annoys Bill and her brother of Richard Barlow, who is Dennis Lotus. Now, they don't think it's the best idea, but she is bullheaded and goes. Richard is also a professor at this school, and in order for her to leave, she does have to promise that she will attend a mutual friend of Sue, who is Maxine Holden, as she has a birthday party coming up in two weeks. Now, the village of Whitewood is in the middle of nowhere. It is eerie, too, and it appears to have been hidden in mist. Now, on her way, she is stopped by a hitchhiker that turns out to be Jethro. Now, when she arrives in the village, he disappears. Nan first goes to the Raven's Inn, where she sees a plaque commemorating the execution of Elizabeth Salwyn. Now, Nan rings the bell and then meets the woman who's running the inn, who is a Mrs. Newless, who's also portrayed by Jessel. She is told that it is all booked up by dropping the name of Alan Driscoll. She is given a room. Nan gets a bad feeling when she explores the village. Reverend Russell, who is Norman McOwen, bars her way into the church, but she does get a little bit nicer introduction from his granddaughter of Patricia, who is Betta St. John. Nan hears some strange scene coming from the cellar under her room. Mrs. Newless tries to quell her fears, but it doesn't work. But something horrifying is happening to her that draws the attention of Richard and Bill to this village. Patricia also knows there's something going on here that is, you know, running below the surface here and tries to help as well. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap, as this is an interesting movie that it came out in the same year as Black Sunday from Mario Bava. They have a very similar beginning with just one, this one isn't as brutal. And then also interesting aspect is that this is an early Amicus film, but at the time they were under the name of Vulcan Productions. Now, with that out of the way, I really like some of the elements that we're playing with here. I like the idea that we have this witch who was burned at the stake and then cursing the village. There are suspicions from the beginning that Elizabeth and Mrs. Newless are either the same person or the latter is just reincarnated from, you know, the soul there. 
Jethro could also be a specter that helps those to be led to sacrifice, or again, it might be something very similar that we're getting here with Elizabeth and Mrs. Newless. But there are just some very cool reveals as we go as well. Now, there is also a bit of warning with this movie, is that Nan is told by all those around her not to look into what she is. Now, there is a bit of misogyny that comes with this, in my opinion, but they're also not wrong. It is that this motif that they're messing around with forces, and then something bad can happen to you if you are. I also like the idea that they're living in a modern world. Richard and Bill both reject it as a former as an educated man of science, where Bill is just a modern man that only believes that in what he can see and accepted by society. On the other hand, you have Alan who does believe, but there's a bit more to him as well. Patricia falls into an interesting camp here. Her family is from Whitewood, but she has experienced the outside world. She deals in books though, so history is very important to her. She doesn't necessarily believe, but she does see strange things that make her question what she has seen. Aside from these aspects, I really like the soundtrack for the most part in this movie. We get this creepy chanting in the opening credits, and then we get it throughout the village of Whitewood. Now there's music behind it to match it as well, and the chanting just makes it that much creepier. And there's also a bit of the movie that has music that I don't necessarily fit, but they don't use it all that much there, so I can be a little bit forgiving. And we also get an unnerving scene where Nan comes out to join the party at the end, but when she opens the door, everything stops, and I was a big fan of that as well. Now, the acting for this movie is a bit weird for me. There are quite a few people who compare this to Psycho with some of the things that happen, and I can see what they're getting at, but they were in production at the same time, so it's you can't really blame either of them for copying the other. Lotus gets introduced pretty early on, but then he disappears into the middle half of the movie, and there's something about him that just rubs me the wrong way as our hero. I think it's the fact that him and Naylor are a bit misogynistic, while still being given as our heroes. Richard's supposed to be there looking for his sister, but he just seems more interested in Patricia. Now, Stevenson feels like our star, but there's something that happens to her within the first third of the movie. Now, she was good aside from that, and we do get to see her in her underwear, which I'm not going to lie. For 1960, I was pretty impressed, and it wasn't all that bad. Lee doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he's always good. Jessel's probably the best performance for me. There's just something creepy about her, and the same could be said for dial and mick owen saint john and the rest of the cast do round this out for what was needed in my opinion and the last thing i'll go over here is the atmosphere effects and cinematography for the effects we really don't get a lot of them the movie just doesn't show things which is fine but we know what they're doing and then some of it is actually kind of brutal in the grand scheme of things especially for the era what this movie does really well is the atmosphere this village is just covered in mist which makes it eerie and i really don't like that no one really points it out to be honest the cinematography is fine, but there, there's really a lot that I could tell which is done on set. So with that said, this movie does some things that are really good, but I just feel like it's lacking something to really bring it all together. I love the setting, and then that we actually have a witch that was executed, and now this village is cursed. The setting is good, as the atmosphere really works, especially for the creepy parts of the soundtrack. I think for the most part, the acting from the villains is fine. I just have some issues with our heroes. That is more of the time, so it's really kind of hard to fault this movie. This is just really kind of boring at some parts of it despite its only 75 minute runtime for whatever reason i still enjoy it as a movie that along with black sunday really paves the way for some of these more witch movies that we end up getting after the fact i found this to be above average overall and i'm slightly above where i was last time and i came in with a 6.5 out of 10 on this movie and that's all i have for mini reviews of this week so what i'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review Is there trouble? And you 
saying things. She would sit right beside him just whispering. But she wasn't talking to him. We found it in her pocket. She didn't believe in God. What was the matter whether he believed? I found mom's diary. What if she saw something? Out there. I told y'all not to come. There are things in this world, horrible things, wicked, and they come for whoever they want. I saw something. She wasn't crazy. Do you smell him? He's close now. He's not out there. He's already here. For my first feature review on this episode is going to be The Dark and the Wicked. This is from 2020. This is written and directed by Brian Bertino. It stars Marin Ireland, Mike Lebbett Jr., Julie Oliver Touchstone, along with Lynn Andrews, Tom Nowicki, Michael Zagstedt, Xander Berkeley, Charles Jonathan Trott, Ella Ballantine, Mel Cohen, Mindy Raymond, and Chris Dobeck. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being on a secluded farm in a nondescript rural town, a man is slowly dying. His family gathers to mourn and soon darkness grows, marked by waking nightmares and a growing sense that something evil is taking over the family. Now this is a movie that I saw a lot of people talking about in the horror groups that I'm a part of, and it was one that I knew that I needed to see before you know, this year ended, as I wanted to have it as part of my year-end roundup of, you know, 2020 films that I needed to see. And interesting enough, I was actually going to have another movie be a featured review on here, but that one wasn't nearly as good, and this one kind of pulled me in immediately. So I was, you know, I made that shift and decided to, you know, make this the featured review here. Now, before getting into kind of the recap and then my analysis of this movie, I have some notes here is that Bertino is still relatively light when it comes to directing, as he only has four credits. His first was, of course, The Strangers, which I'm a fan of. He followed that up with Mockingbird from 2014, which I haven't seen yet. And I think I've heard some mixed reviews on that one. But I did like his other movie of The Monster, and then I will get into my thoughts on this movie. Now, he's also a has a bit more writing credits to his name. All four I have named, he also wrote. And then he also did the sequel, The Strangers Pray at Night, with... He has two upcoming projects as well, and so far he has stayed in the horror genre, it looks like, so that's something I'm definitely glad to see. Now, Marin Ireland has 68 acting credits. Her first in genre was the following TV series, which I haven't seen, but I've heard a lot of people talk highly of. Her feature film into horror was Piercing, which I liked and did see that one a couple years ago. 
Now, she has another movie from this year that is the, called The Empty Man, which I haven't seen yet, but I do know that that one hasn't been getting as much buzz. And I did see her in the TV series of Homeland as well as The Killing. And then we have Michael Abbott Jr. has 36 projects as an actor. This is the only movie, though, in horror. He was uncredited as a voice in the Red Dead Redemption Undead Nightmare video game and then appeared in one episode of Fear the Walking Dead. He might actually be appearing in there right now. I haven't kept up on this season as of yet, so I'm not sure. But I did see him in the movie of Mud, A Beautiful Mind, and Compliance, which all of those I liked in their own kind of different ways. Then the last actress here I'll go into is Julie Oliver Touchstone. She has 24 acting credits. Her first in genre was back in 1984 with Bloodsuckers from Outer Space. She didn't come back to the genre until 2012 in the movie called Back Road. Now, she has done a short and some TV that is falls in the horror genre, but I haven't seen any of her work at this time outside of this movie here. Now, this movie, we started off on a goat and sheep farm in Texas. The name is said at one point in the movie, but it really isn't that important, and they kind of just say it in passing, as we never actually get to see the town. The mother of this family is portrayed by Oliver Touchstone. Her husband is dying, and he is portrayed by Zext. Now, she is sewing out in the barn when she hears something like a wolf in the distance. Now, she goes inside to cook and, you know, prep food and everything, and then behind her, a chair moves. But we actually don't see it move. We just hear it, and then she turns and sees it. The movie then informs us that it is Monday. It is broken up into chapters as everything ends on the following Sunday. A woman of Louise, who is Ireland, opens up the gate and then enters the yard. She is greeted by her mother telling her that she shouldn't have come. But also not respecting her wishes is Michael, who is portrayed by Abbott, who is her brother. He is helping out on the farm, along with the farmhand of Charlie, who is Nowicki, who does this seem, he seems to do all the work on the farm, and I'm assuming it's because Michael and Louise's father is sick. Something interesting is that Michael has a family where Louise's life seems to be falling apart around her. That night, their mother cuts off her fingers while prepping food, and then seems to dice him up, and this is something that really made me cringe. Then the following morning, they find the aftermath but can't find their mother. She has hung herself in the barn, and the siblings are now faced with what they should do with their father. Michael is dedicated to stay until Friday, possibly even beyond now. Luis agrees to stay on to help care for him. Now, they do have a nurse that shows up and spends most of the day there, uh, portrayed by Andrews, who offers to get more full-time care for him, but at first they decline her offer. The siblings start to see more of what their mother was saying, Maybe she was trying to keep them away for a different reason than not wanting their help. They find her diary and Michael sees haunting images of her. Louise sees one of her father and they're both hearing weird noises. They also encounter an odd priest who is portrayed by Berkeley that isn't necessarily who he seems to be. So what is really going on here? Are they descending into madness due to grief of what's happened to their family? Or is there a supernatural entity that is messing around with them? Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie. I feel that gets you up to speed. Now, I know that one person that recommended giving this a viewing was Mr. Watson of the Watsy Party Horror Show and Horror Corridor. Now, I'm a big fan of you know him in general, but he usually has some great recommendations. So when I heard that he liked this one, I knew I had to add it of a list of films to see. And I also know that he's a big fan of the writer-director of Bertino. I haven't seen a bad one yet from him either. Now that helped me to sit down, you know, and watch this. And then Jamie also watches one with me as I end up paying for this to rent it. And if I'm going to do that, I do like to watch it with her or at least somebody else because it justifies the price tag in my head. I know it's kind of a weird thing, but uh, here we are. Now where I want to go first with my analysis would be the setting. 
Bertino enjoys giving our characters an isolated place, especially with films like The Stranger and The Monster. I think this is a great idea, though, because that's one of the things that makes it where if you can't flee or it's too hard to flee, it actually increases the tension for me, so that really does work. Now here we have this farm that is isolated in the country, so at night, there really isn't anywhere that you can run to. We also are hearing noises like wolf howls, so that doesn't help with the wilderness you know, being right there as well. Now my parents live in the country, not out as far as like this movie has it, and I mean they live in Michigan, but that doesn't change the fact that you could hear some spooky things at times, and I remember being in high school and staying up late and hearing like almost like a pack of wild dogs or something like that outside of our windows for the room that I was hanging out in. I mean, back then I was staying up till like two to three in the morning. And that night I was terrified after hearing how close they had got into the house. So, you know, that's just something that for me, hearing these wolf howls really kind of brings back that, you know, creepy memory. Now going along this, we also have a potential to be either a family descending into madness with the grief of their dying father or a supernatural presence. There is definitely a way to read this for the descending into madness, but I don't think that's the case at all. This is really a film about a dynamic presence. What I really like here is that the mother isn't happy to see her children there. At first I thought it could be that they're just a farming family, so she's just hardened and callous, which I think is part of it. The family is fairly estranged from each other, so there's also that element. They don't really seem to talk as, you know, being a part of like their normal everyday type of thing, so it's also a little bit of that there. But there's something else going on here as well though. This family is actually being tormented by a dynamic entity, as I was saying. This shouldn't come as a spoiler, so if it is, I do apologize. They handle this in a great way, if I'm going to be honest. It starts out subtly with things like chairs moving. From there, we're getting characters that are being seen that aren't entirely sure if they're actually there or not, and this demon does what it can to break them down. There is a heavy religious aspect to this. What is interesting here, though, is that the mother and the father aren't religious. They're nurses, but aside from that, this family really does its own thing. It appears that the mother has turned to religion in fear of what is happening, which I think is a great thing because we see that a lot in movies and in just real life in general. As I mean, the big thing that I always think about is when somebody's facing their own mortality, that's kind of where they go to. There are some great allegories to go along with this. For example, the farm has sheep. At night, there are these wolf howls, signifying that this demon is kind of something like you'd get from the Bible stories where humans are the sheep and waiting to be preyed on. And I really enjoyed this kind of aspect that they're doing here with this like allegory. This demon is also pushing those it is messing with to kill themselves. And I think that this is to is to commit a carnal sin, which in turn would damn them from going to heaven. This is all something that really kind of ticks boxes for me, if I'm going to be honest. Where I think I'll go next is the soundtrack to this movie. I have to admit, it is probably one of the strongest and creepy aspects for this. The sound design of things that are possessed made me feel uncomfortable. The wolf and just country sounds add to that. And there's also hearing things from characters that is out of kind of their character the music selections work very well and it's in its favor to build this atmosphere this movie is going for as well and that's something i'll give to bertino because he definitely did that with the strangers where some of the songs that are played are just creepy and just work so well to kind of build that creepy atmosphere that he's going for so i do have to give props there from here i want to go next to the acting i think that across the board everyone is pretty strong Ireland plays this woman that is just run down and life just hasn't been particularly kind to. I think that works for where she ends up and the decisions that she has to make. Abbott is solid as her counterpart. His life is a bit more together, but he is willing to give that up for a time to look after his other family members. 
Oliver Touchdown, Andrews, Nowicki, and Berkeley all round this out for what was needed with the rest of the supporting cast helping out as well. And also I need to give props to Zext. For pretty much most of this movie, he's just lying there and pretending to be dying. That really adds a creepy factor to the rest of his performance. No one here is going to win awards, but I think they're all doing well in playing their parts. Now, if I do have any issues here, it's with the effects. All of the practical ones are good. There are no problems there, and they actually look pretty real, and there were a couple of them that made me, like I said, legitimately cringe. There are just a few things with the CGI that took me out of the movie. If it would have been just like one or two of them, I think I'd have been fine, but there's just quite a few that just kind of hurt ever so slightly for me. Then the last thing I just really wanted to go over very briefly would be, I didn't love the ending. I get where they're taking us, but it's just too abrupt to fully work for me in its favor. So like I said, it's not going to completely ruin the movie, but just something that when it ended, I kind of was feeling like I needed a little bit more than what we were getting. So I feel like I needed to add that here. And then just a little bit of trivia here was that this was filmed on the director's family farm. Before it was canceled, this was supposed to have its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. So I do apologize and I don't know why I'm personally apologizing, but I do feel bad that this didn't get, you know, the bigger release that Bertina was probably hoping for. But I think this is a really good movie. The story ticks a lot of boxes that I like. The acting is solid for what was needed. The soundtrack and design of the movie is just creepy and to build the atmosphere that was needed. There are just a few issues with the CGI, but aside from that, the effects were good as well. This is definitely a contender for my top movies for the year. I'm coming at this moment as being a really good movie that is borderline on great for me right now. And I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, I'm not going to do a spoiler section or anything like that, but I am going to kick you over to the trailer of my second featured review. These are the Hilliker brothers. Definitely the most dangerous patients in the hospital. They're just kids. second featured review on this episode is going to be wrong turn for bloody beginnings from 2011 this is directed and written by declan o'brien and then this is from the characters from alan b McElroy. this stars jennifer putovic tanika davis caitlin lieb as well as ali tataran samantha kendrick victor zinc jr dean armstrong sean skeen blaine superba Dan Skeen, Tristan Carlucci, Scott Johnson, Brian Verlot, and Arnie McPherson. This is a horror film that is a co-production between the United States and Germany. It is currently sitting on a 
4.6 on IMDb and a 2.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a group of college students get lost in a storm during their snowmobiling trip and take shelter in an abandoned sanitarium, which, unbeknownst to them, is home to three deformed cannibals. Now, this is a movie that I actually didn't know came out until I started working at Family Video, and it was on their new release wall. I haven't worked there in close to a decade, and I'm just now getting to seeing this as it wasn't very high as a priority for me because I wasn't really sure what to get into. And at the time, I didn't really care for the second and third one, which I had seen while I was in college. But I did like the first one, and then I have rewatched the second one here recently, and I thought that was a pretty fun movie, and I've come around to it a little bit. Now, I don't remember a lot of the third one, so I was wondering how this one would work for me. And then before I get into that, I'm going to give you some, you know, my featured notes information here where the director of O'Brien really seems to enjoy doing sequels of horror movies. He has nine directing credits where he started in TV horror movies with Rock Monster, Monster Arc, and Cyclops. I'm assuming all these had lower budgets, as you can make three in one year. Now, he did do Wrong Turn 3, Left 4 Dead, which I have seen, but it's been a long time, so I don't really remember it. Now, he also did Sharktopus, this movie here, Wrong Turn 5, Bloodlines, and his last was Joyride 3, Roadkill, which I've also seen. And I also was not a big fan of either. As a writer, he has 15 credits. It appears that he does the writing for most movies that he makes, but he started with the TV horror movie of the Snake King and Savage Planet. From there, he also penned Rock Monster, Monster Arc, this movie, and then the sequel, as well as Joyride 3. Now, the characters are from Alan B. McElroy, which I have brought up as this was part of Halloween 4, where he did the writing over there. And he's only really credited here because the three villains in this movie were his idea. Now, as for our actors and actresses, Podovic has 27 acting credits. Her first in genre was 2001 with Wishmaster 3, Beyond the Gates. And then she followed that up with Wishmaster 4, The Prophecy Fulfilled, which I haven't seen either of those as of yet. And then she went on to do The Plague from 2006. And then her last in the genre was this movie. Then we have Tanika Davis, who has 24 acting credits. She got her first in horror with Saw 6 as an irate clinic woman. Aside from this movie, she was in Debug from 2014 and also in Beauty and the Beast TV series from 2014 for one episode. Now finally, I'll give you Caitlin Lieb's info. She has 32 acting credits. This is her first in horror. Since she was in this, she had also been in Grave Halloween from 2013, TV series of Bitten for two episodes, Wolves from 2014, the Slasher TV series for, for seven episodes there, and then she was in this year's Anything for Jackson, which I've started to hear more about lately, but I have yet to see it as of right now. Now, we start this movie back in 1974 outside of the hospital from the synopsis. There is a Dr. Ryan, who is portrayed by McPherson, giving a tour of the facility to Dr. Anne-Marie McQuaid, who is Kristen Harris. It appears that she's going to be working with some of the patients here, and she has a more new age way of working with them. Dr. Ryan gives off the vibe that he doesn't really think it will work. Now, what we do learn is that most everyone here has mental handicaps due to massive inbreeding. They go to the section where their most violent patients are being held, and in one of the cells are the three brothers of Three Finger, One Eye, and Sawtooth when they're younger. They end up escaping, releasing all the other patients, and carnage ensues. We then shift into the future. I'm assuming that Christmas break is starting, and we have a group that is going to their friend's house by the name of Porter, as he has a cabin in the woods that they're going to go to party, snowmobile, and whatever debauchery comes with these long weekends. Now we get an odd scene here where we have Sarah, who is portrayed by Davis, and Bridget, who is portrayed by Lieb, as they're having sex in their bed, while another couple in the same exact room in their other bed are having sex. They all get interrupted by Kania, who is Putovic, telling them that if they're riding with her, that she is leaving in five minutes. 
Now they arrive where they're parking their vehicles and they're gonna have to snowmobile the rest of the way. Joining them is another couple of Jenna who is Tara Vinsa and her boyfriend Vincent who is Sean Skeen. Then there's Kyle who is Victor Senek Jr. He's with Claire who is Samantha Kendrick and where they also have Lauren who is Ali Tataran who is with Daniel who is Dean Armstrong. He doesn't seem to be liked by everyone, so Kyle is supposed to know the way, but they come to a crossroads. Kania thinks that it is one way, he thinks that it's another. They end up following what he says because he seems a little bit more sure, and it ends up turning out to be wrong. Now, it is snowing and dark, and in the distance they see the abandoned hospital and decide to seek refuge there. Now, the group tries to make the best of the night by partying there, but we see that they aren't alone. Three Finger, who is portrayed by Sean Skeen, who also, you know, is doing double duty here. One Eye, who is Dan Skeen, and then Sawtooth, who is Scott Johnson, show up to the hospital dragging the body of someone. They see that the college students are there. Now they pick off Vincent that night and then take the gear they left in the common area. Now the snowmobiles are also disabled, trapping this other group as there is a winter storm raging. And then these hillbillies pick them off one by one and eat their victims as they try to fight their way back to civilization. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap as this movie becomes a slasher from here. What I will say to start off is that for this part of my review is I think there are some good aspects of this movie. Some are really bad as well though. I will say that coming into this I figured by the title that we were getting a prequel but that is really only the code open for this movie in like the first 10 minutes or so and then from there we're in present day but I guess as I was reading a little bit more that this all takes place before the original Wrong Turn movie. But I'll kind of get into something here where I could almost see where this second part of it could actually be taken as a sequel to the other ones from what I understand, but I could be wrong here. Now, I will give that the setup isn't all that bad. I'm glad that they decided to make a slasher film in the snow. We get a few times where we're getting the blood on it, which is something that I know for myself and many horror fans that I've heard really like the look of. I don't really recall at the time of writing and recording this of what happened in Wrong Turn 3. I know I saw it, but I can't remember anything from there because it was quite forgettable from what I do remember. What I was going to say, though, I like the idea that this could be where they hide out during the winter to survive. And that would be this trio of Three Finger, One Eye, and Sawtooth. That they could possibly return to this hospital since it is a better way to protect themselves from the elements. Now, I don't necessarily buy that the power is on there, but I guess they could have a generator that they're using... That, I mean, they could have literally stolen from somebody they've killed, and then they could be stealing gas from these other people they're killing to keep going. So I can believe that. It just makes more sense that the power would be off with how far they live out in the wilderness. And, I mean, there's not like there's power lines or they would really necessarily need that. When you live that far out there, you kind of just make do with what you have. Now, there are some pretty solid deaths as well in this movie. There's a take on the medieval torture device here in the cold open, a hanging scene with barbed wire, and even a torture scene with somebody being carved up. I think that when they go with the practical effects, these all look good. There's some good blood, and the cinematography works when they go with like close-ups there to hide some of the stuff that might not look as well. My problem is that they also go CGI, which it does ruin quite a few of the deaths for me because it takes me out of it where I could tell where they switched over. They also have this giant drill that they have for some of the things that they cause mayhem and kill people with. That was a little bit comical in my eyes and doesn't necessarily work. What I will give credit, though, is... I'll go back to the idea that I love to see, you know, the blood on the snow look. Now, next up for me will be the acting. I'm going to be perfectly honest, though. I had trouble keeping some of these characters straight. The women are all 
quite attractive and the dudes are all quite broy. but the problem is they all kind of look alike and nobody really plays their character enough that they're that distinct for me. And it only really is when they start to kill people off that I was able to kind of differentiate. I did like that Puttavuk is one of our leads along with Davis. We get to see the latter naked a couple of times, so, you know, thank you, movie, along with her girlfriend in the movie of Lieb. And then there's another young lady in a very early scene where we get to see her nude as well. Now, some of these actors I said previously have done double duty for the villains. Sean Skeen, of course, is Vincent as well as Three Finger. I thought he was fine as the latter. Johnson uh, was also an orderly, which is fine, along with his imposing size is good for the character of Sawtooth. I'm assuming Sean's brother is Dan, who was One-Eye, and I thought that was kind of a cool thing to do there, and I thought he was also solid. So I will say, the villains are much better for me, for the most part, than the other characters that we're supposed to be following, and that's kind of my problem sometimes with these slasher films, is that I want characters that I at least like somewhat, and these ones I really could take or leave, and the kills aren't good enough for me to kind of get on board, for me to really kind of fully submerse myself in this movie. Now my last thing to go to would be the soundtrack. My favorite part is that when they have this cheery music synced up in the beginning mayhem scene at the hospital with what is happening. I'm a sucker for when you do stuff like that because it shows an interesting duality. From there, the rest of the soundtrack was just fine in my opinion, fitting for what was needed, and it appears that they selected at least two songs that the lyrics make sense to what we're seeing in the, on the screen. So I will give credit for them to do that as well. Now that's all I really have for my kind of thoughts on it. There's not really a whole lot that I can pick apart here, but I do have some trivia is that this is, according to the IMDb trivia, is that this is a prequel to the first three movies. Sean Skeen is the fourth actor to portray Three Finger. This was shot in 19 days. It was shot on location in an actual abandoned sanatorium. Sean and Bridget are two of three lesbians in the Wrong Turn series after Amber from Wrong Turn 2 Dead End. The fondue scene was filmed on the last day of shooting. Most of the snow seen throughout the movie was real. I will say there was one scene where I don't feel like it was where they were doing CGI of having it fall, and I was not a big fan of that. That is something I'm glad I just thought of there. Writer-director O'Brien plays the doctor in the black-and-white film short. Photos of various crew members can be seen in the files for the mental patients at the asylum. I thought that was kind of a cool thing. This, I don't really know why, is a trivia fact, but Sarah and Bridget are both shown to have full C-sized breasts and shaved crotch areas in their nude sex scenes with each other. If you didn't know that, now you know. And then the Blue Danube Waltz featured in the opening sequence at the Asylum was performed by an orchestra in London. That was what I was referring to. That music does sync up very well for me. So now with that said, I came in with pretty low expectations and I kind of met them. This is a mid-2010 slasher film. It has a solid setup and I'm fine with that. Getting more of the trio of the cannibal inbred hillbillies is fine with me for these like sequels that we keep getting. But there is quite a bit of overacting and the characters aren't necessarily distinct, which kind of hurts it. The practical effects are solid where the CGI isn't so much. I think they'll do some good things with the soundtrack. This isn't a great slasher film, but I just feel like it's fine. Overall, I'd rate this just over average, and I can only really recommend this to slasher fans, and mostly for the setting and time of year that it is in. It fits into the series of films that are, I guess, just kind of... None of them really stand out as being all that great to begin with. So I came in with my rating here as a 5.5 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is I'm not going to do a spoiler section. This film doesn't really need it. So what I am going to do, though, is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Yeah. 
always come back, never disappear. Even if I take my final breath here, I need you now. Don't fade away on me. Cause I made a mistake. I think I took a wrong turn. Where along the way, I see you. I want to welcome you back one last time here as I close out episode number 57 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me via email, you can send that to journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you do send me any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to be read on the show, just let me know if you want it read. And if not, you know, I can keep that private as well. But either way, I would like to hear from you listeners out there. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews on something I covered on this episode or any of the past ones, that's at horrorreview.webnode.com, and that's Reviews of the Dead. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. You could follow me on Twitter at Buckeye from Mish. You could follow me on Letterboxd at DavidOSU. You can follow my Instagram at DavidOSU87. And if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile. And I will have all of those links in the show notes to make it easier to find any of those as well. So the last thing that I would ask, if you could, 
go ahead and subscribe to whatever podcatching device that you are listening to me on just so that way you never miss a new episode and also if you could rate and review on those that would be greatly appreciated as well just so I can kind of figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like and also help me to get out to as many listeners as possible. So now for episode number 58, we're going to do another of these, you know, winter year-end type episodes as I'm going to finally watch the movie of Troll Hunter, one that's been on my list for some time, so I'm going to finally knock that one off. And then the 2020 release, it looks like that I'm going to pair that up with is Blood Vessel. And then I'm also going to do another 1960s film just so I can keep up with that journey through the odd stuff that I've been doing. And that looks like it's going to be Ship of Monsters, a film from Mexico that's not exactly what I thought it was, but it looks like it might be a fun film that I'm going to go ahead and watch as well. And then, of course, I'll, you know, get in some, hopefully some more 2020 watches as well of rewatching ones that are high up on my list as well as watching some new ones just so I can make that be the best year-end list that I can possibly do. But that's all I think I really wanted to delve into here to get you up to speed of what the next episode and you'll know, wrap everything up with this one. I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me, whatever you do today. I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 